Um, welcome to another episode of The Intellectuals. Uh, we're delighted today to have a guest return. Uh, we discovered that there was so much to talk about in his last interview that it was important to bring him back so we could continue the conversation. So I want to thank in advance uh, Todd Wood and CD Media for graciously providing this platform and our producers for today's episode, Captain Brett Ramsey and Miss Ginny Gallagher. Our guest today is Professor Jason Hill. Uh, Professor Hill uh, specializes in philosophy. He's the author of five books. We're going to dig into two of those books today. The first, white, what do white Americans owe black people? Racial justice in the age of post-oppression. And this was the, the essence of our conversation in our last interview. And then we want to finish up on that and then move to another best-selling book with the title, We Have Overcome, An Immigrant's Letter to the American People. Professor Hill holds a PhD in philosophy and has been a professional writer and book author for over 30 years. He is a specialist in ethics, political philosophy, moral psychology, American politics, and foreign policy. He has been published in major magazines, including The Federalist, The American Mind, The American Thinker, Commentary Magazine, Spiked Magazine, and Salon. He is also a contributor to The Hill and is a poet. The poem is being published in numerous journals. Professor Hill came to this country at the age of 20 from Jamaica and tells us he has thrived beyond his wildest dreams. Welcome back to the program, Professor Hill. Thank you so much for having me, Ron. It's my pleasure. <clears throat> well, we're going to dig in. Uh, no waste, no time here. Uh, your recent book, What Do White Americans Owe Black People? Racial Justice in the American Age of Post-Oppression, was probably one of the most intriguing books I have had the, the pleasure or honor to read. And I must tell you, like Frederick A. Hayek, who writes in a very dense and parsimonious way, I read a sentence and I have to digest it because it has concept, it has history, it has evidence. And it takes a while to really absorb the depth of your analysis, Professor Hill. So with that, I wanna pursue some additional provocative themes in that book. You explain slavery in the context of when it occurred. Your critics complain that this is a defense of slavery and appear to completely ignore or dismiss your explanation of the nature of the indigene, I-N-D-I-G-E-N-E. -E. Not a commonly used word. What is an indigene and why is it important to understand the history of slavery? Well, it's very important to understand because there are a couple of facts that have been overlooked in the dispositions and the historical explanations of slavery. And one of them, the first fact that has been overlooked is the fact that 90% of Africans that were sold into slavery to the Europeans were actually kidnapped by Africans on the continent. And this, this was a point that Henry Lewis Gates made in, a, in an article in, I think it was the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times. 
and I think he made this 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 comment very very um, um, with without with with great not regret but with sadness that the slave trade would not have occurred um, without the cooperation of Africans. I mean, in the global imaginary, there is this idea that Europeans arrived on the shore and ravaged the continent and there were just screaming, fleeing Africans running away. And this is not the case. There was a cooperation among Arab traders, among black Africans who were not unified in their identities. There was no such thing as a unified African consciousness. There were different tribes and there was a collusion among the Africans and the Europeans and the, and the Arab traders to kidnap competing uh, members of competing tribes and sell them into slavery. So this is something that's in the name of political correctness has been overlooked. Now, the second part that I get into is what I call the indigene, that is the indigenous African, the African natives who were there. And I describe <clears throat> that through their philosophy, through their philosophy of animism, which is a sort of spiritism, it's a sort of religion, uh, they made themselves through that philosophy of animism indistinguishable from nature. And I'd, I'd just like to read, just to sort of to, to dis, dispel the idea that I'm defending slavery, what I really mean by this from the book, What Do White Americans Tell Black People? Um, when I talk about the indigene, the African, I just, I'll just read a, a couple sentences here. The cent what I mean is the central problem with the cognitive makeup of the African indigene, past and present, is that its inhabitants failed in the process of domesticating nature and above all, abstracting themselves from it. Like the rest of the animal kingdom, sub-Saharan African man adapted himself to his background but never got beyond it. He also never got beyond the state of adapting himself to the biological functions of his body. To forge a civilization out of nature or command nature, it is not simply sufficient to obey it, which means nothing more than observing the invariable laws which govern it. Nature must be raped, exploited, and utilized selfishly for man's proper survival, which means a life of flourishing, the productive exercise of one's reasons, the highest reaches of technological civilization, and the discovery of a political constitution that safeguards the rights, dignities, requirements of human survival. The indigene was not able to do this. And at the beginning of slavery, which is also not properly made known, there were no racial taxonomies. Racial taxonomies did not develop until around the 16th, 17th, 17th century. So what I'm saying is that the indigene by his animism did not distinguish himself from nature, did not abstract himself from nature, did not see nature as something that should be exploited. And so therefore, technologically, was the civilizational inferior to European man who did abstract himself from nature, who did see himself as being the custodian of God, doing God's work, and saw the African as actually indistinguishable from water, buffalo, from deer, from tiger, from the minerals, as something that just should be exploited. And so I took a very unsentimental, dispassionate view, almost an anthropological view of the whole thing and divested myself of all sort of sentimental forms of looking at slavery and looked at it in the simple sense that when you look at civilizations, there was a war for resources. The African indigene was seen as a resource as were minerals and they lost. India lost the war, the Native Americans lost the war. Um, 
I, I don't see, for example, America as being existing on stolen lands. I see that the Native Americans, there was a war for resources and the Native Americans lost the war. And the question that should be asked is why did tiny England, why did this really small, tiny island dear at some point in history to dominate almost a third of the globe? What is it in the civilizations of, or the societies of these cultures, these cultures that made them unable to safeguard their security and fight a, a tiny island, a tiny civilization like 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 England. So that's that's really what I mean by the indigene, and that's and that's what I get into in great detail in the second chapter and explain why, through the philosophy, through the religion of animism, animism, the indigene was unable, in this failure to abstract himself from nature and to build a technological civilization unable to defend himself against the, con the slave conquerors, the slave traders. <coughs> well, you mentioned the word sentiment. <coughs> sentiment in your explanation. In my understanding is that sentiment tends to be an emotional manifestation. And what strikes me as unusual, especially within the context of your uh, explanation of an indigene and how it played out in history is that the human being has a cerebral cortex which provides the capacity for reasoning beyond the emotional attachments but yet it seems like our emotional attachments will dominate any sorts of uh, intellectual reasoning that's contrary to that sentiment that emotion and do you think that's really what we're is the essence of what we're dealing with today in America? Almost certainly, almost certainly. We have a culture that is so devoted to the primacy of feelings and emotions over logic, over reasons. We are in the midst of cancel culture, of woke supremacy, where what constitutes an offense and what makes one a, a victim is not whether your inalienable individual rights have been violated, but whether someone has simply offended your feelings, whether someone has uttered something that hurts your sensibilities. And I think this is quite dangerous. Um, people have called such individuals snowflakes. Um, I don't really use those sorts of adjectives to, to describe uh, the individuals. I see it as a decline in or civilizational values because if we take, if we eliminate the traditional criteria for adjudicating among truth claims, disputing truth claims, which are reason and logic, which by the way, in today's cancer culture are taken to be racist tropes. Reason is not just an outcast. It has become an outlaw. It's said to be the creation of racist, imperialist, dead white men who've used reason and logic to keep marginalized people outside the domain of the ethical, outside the pantheon of the human community. When reason and logic, which are necessary requirements for human survival, are criminalized and they're the only proper criteria for adjudicating among truth claims, and when feelings take primacy over those criteria, we're, we're in a lot of problems. Careers are being ruined right now. People are being fired for their jobs because one, all one has to really claim 
is that you've said something that offends my feelings, that I'm hurt, that I'm psychologically harmed with no proof that one's dignity has really been eviscerated in such a manner that one is truly, you know, psychologically crippled. Um, so I think this is exactly, we're in, a, we're in an age of nihilism. Uh, we're in an age of the cult of feelings uh, and the cult, an age where cultural relativism uh, and ethical relativism are superseding logic and reason. And this, is, I think, is very, very, very dangerous. It's overtaking our universities where every village idiot thinks that elevating his sophomoric high school opinions to the level of human knowledge supersedes those of an expert, which in essence, when you listen to the utterances of those who take their psychological, their, their high school opinions to the level of human knowledge, one becomes really a statistician of utter trivia, which is what those of us who take ourselves to be rational persons have become. And so, Ron, I think this is this is. I'm glad you asked that question because it cannot be emphasized enough that we're we're we've gone beyond mere sentimentality. We have become addicted. It's a kind of narcissism where our feelings are not subjected to any kind of rational scrutiny, and where we think that we can't change our feelings. That our feelings are the product of our thinking or the thinking that we have failed to do. Uh, but they're just givens. And those givens have destroyed lives and ruined careers. Well, and as a segue to my next question, what you just described characterizes the sentiment that resulted in the totalitarianism in the Soviet Union and Europe during the 20th century. It was, it was all emotional sentiment, which justified atrocities. That's right. Which which leads me to the next question and why your your book is so important and i recommend it to all my friends if, if they really want an understanding of what america is going through right now your book is a tremendous uh, foundation for understanding that and so in analyzing america's history you talk about the three foundings what are the three foundings and why are they important to understand in context of the racial division memes that are obsessed over and promoted by the left in today's society? Well, of course, the, great, the first founding was 1776 and the, <clears throat> the creation of the Constitution and Declaration of Independence. That's the first founding. And I argue in the book, much to the chagrin of many people, that the, 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 that black freedom was actually afforded in the crucibles of the 1776 uh, in the, the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, that the inalienability clause, which unfortunately was not applied to blacks at the time, but still provided the moral and the political vocabulary, which the civil rights movement later on was able to draw upon. Martin Luther King did not repudiate the Constitution. He did not repudiate the, the, the Declaration of Independence. The whole civil rights movement, which I'll talk about in a moment, uh, those individuals realized that they were the legacies of the moral language of inalienability, um, of inviolability, of equal moral worth, and drew upon those political vocabularies that were, which blacks did not enjoy, but which blacks were able to harness and use for their emancipation. 
So I would say that the, the foundational bedrock of black freedom was even found in the beginnings of this country, although blacks were not free. And in the second great founding, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address and the Civil War, where something like, I guess the largest estimate would be 776,000 soldiers died to free black slaves, um, was the second tragic but great founding of this country. I say tragic because any loss of life, including the, life, the, the, the loss of lives during slavery, and the loss of lives during a war is always tragic, but it was a it was a second great founding in the sense that it was an attempt and a successful attempt to free blacks from the bondage of chattel slavery to realize their inalienability, their inviability, and their intrinsic moral worth. And then the third great founding I put in the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which ended legal racism in this country brought blacks full equality before the law. Um, I often tell people that blacks were not primarily the victim of private racists in this country. It was a state who created uh, racism really. Uh, it was a state who, if you go back to 1967, Loving versus Virginia, the state had created miscegenation laws. There were Southerners who might have been racist, who even wanted realizing in the name of capitalism, who wanted to rent hotels. In my research, I found scores and scores and hundreds of hoteliers who wanted to rent on the interstate highways to blacks, but there were laws that prohibited them from doing so. It was the government who created um, segregated schools. So the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which ended legal segregation, but not only that, it told whites that you cannot use your private property as a site of discrimination anymore. It was a social, what I call a social eugenics program in that it attempted to re-socialize the sensibilities of white people and to make racist whites into non-racist by telling them you cannot use your private property to discriminate against blacks anymore. Uh, we are going to legislate how you use your private property, um, which was a violation of, 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 of property rights. And I defend that violation controversially for many reasons, uh, given the extent to which the state had created racists out of people. But nevertheless, that's only so far as a free country can go uh, in transgressing on the rights of individuals. And so I, I place that as the last great founding of, 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 of America vis-a-vis -vis Blacks in terms of carrying through on the promise of including them fully in the domain of the ethical and including them in the pantheon of the human community. They are no part of what I would call the sovereign mass. And there isn't anything further that a free society can do without becoming a bloated totalitarian state. We had the affirmative action programs in 1965 voting, uh, voting Rights Act, the 1972 Unemployment Act, Employment Act, and, and subsequent affirmative action programs that brought Blacks further into the inclusive domain of public sphere American life. So those are the three great moments I would identify. Well, you, you touched upon, you already touched upon and provided the answer to some questions I was going to ask about the racism in the United States basically ending with the passage 
of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, uh, but it didn't really end racism. Uh, it found its way into our, our, the fabric of our society in other ways. And even though you indicate that affirmative action was a form of reparations, that if reparations were owed, uh, they really only applied to those that at the time were being adversely affected by racist policies and laws or whatever. But it, it had very little to do with those that actually were in bondage back in the 19th century uh, going into the Civil War. So it, what, what you're really uh, indicating, explaining, is how complex it, it is to understand the concept of racism in America, how we've tried to deal with it over the years. And, you know, you did a masterful job in your book of threading the needle uh, with those topics. And what really strikes me is you wrestled with the notion of racism being something that was inherent in an individual's way of seeing the world versus how the state now all of a sudden imposed conditions that also promoted racism. And what what concerns us in STARS, Stand Together Against Racism and Radicalism in the Services, is we're seeing that today. Uh, and it wasn't until recently that we learned about the Military Leadership Diversity Commission that was chartered in the 2009 National Defense Authorization Act. And essentially what that charter did was to use the Department of Defense as a Petri dish in terms of introducing deliberate discrimination in the form of diversity, inclusion, and now equity in their policies. They have injected race, ethnicity, gender in terms of making decisions that uh, supersede merit in many cases. And we're aware of it. Uh, in 2011, a former presidential administration issued an executive order establishing diversity and inclusion officers across the entire federal government. And today we see diversity and inclusion officers, not only in the federal government, but state, local governments, academia, and corporations. And so your, your effort to explain the role racism played in America uh, needs to be heard by so many people. It's, it's unbelievable. Uh, has Congress reached out to you at all as an expert on trying to figure out how to deal with this? No, I'd love them to. And I'd love Not to speak before the military because I think this is very, very important. Well, excellent. So we're going to do what we can, Professor Hill, to, uh, to introduce you to some folks that we, we're working with. Uh, so that you can help inform them in terms of the uh, the logic here and how we're, we're defying it. Now, you essentially advocate for the abolishment of race as something that is irrelevant today, irrelevant to thinking, to any thinking human being. Can you explain what you mean by that? Well, in one sense, race is always going to be a mainstay in people's lives. It's a it's a sociological factor. It's a it's a it's a way that people have a way of making sense of their lives, and it's not something that should be completely evacuated entirely. And nor do I think it's 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 desirable nor nor, nor possible. But race in the strong 
metaphysical sense. And by that, I mean the way in which we make the deepest sense of our lives. That is, race is a morally neutral marker about a person. We're here having a conversation. I have a particular racial descriptive identity. You have one. But my moral character is not in any way indelibly tied to the racial descriptive identity that I've been assigned. Um, I'm very racially mixed, but I still have the racial descriptive identity of being black. But that says nothing about who I am as a person. You, Ron, would have to sit and get to know me as an individual in order to make sense. And you wouldn't say that Jason D. Hill's identity and the knowledge I have of him, I can ostensibly point to his black identity and tell you a story. You tell a story of my values, of my principles, of my convictions, of my sense of humor that you probably don't know that I have. You know, so it's 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 getting rid of it in a very significant sense in terms of how we use it to make sense of people's lives and to make sense of the world and to get back to diversity, equity, and inclusion <clears throat> in the military in particular. It's always used as a way of whether it's promotion of seniors or recruitment of individuals as representative, ethnically or racially representative of the nation. Now, this strikes me as really interesting because long before these initiatives, diverse equity and inclusion initiatives came about, the military was doing a marvelous job. I came to this country in 1985. My brother came along with my mother and my grandmother. And within two weeks of arriving on American soil, what did my brother do? He joined the Navy. The, the military was doing a marvelous job of making, of, of making it possible for anyone, regardless of racial, ethnic background. Here was this Jamaican immigrant didn't, it wasn't a citizen yet. We had green cards. The green card was joining the Navy. The Navy was in, the military was becoming increasingly diverse because legal barriers, of course, had already been removed. Um, discriminatory barriers had already been removed. So on its own, the military was doing a marvelous job because it re realized that it's in its rational self-interest to open the doors to the most talented, the most patriotic above all, um, the most efficacious the most and the most talented individuals, regardless of racial background. So when I talk about getting rid of race, it's getting rid of something that is being mandated um, and is being used as a criterion for promotion when we have no idea about the talent or the skill set of these individuals. All we're ostensibly pointing to is something called race. So in a very superficial sense, of course, I think race is a way in which we, 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 part of the way in which we make sense of our identities and ethnicity. But in the deepest, deepest sense in which people go to wars and, and kill and fight. And notice that in America, thank God, we've never really had, you know, uh, ethnic warfare. I mean, among in the at the turn of the 20th century, early 20th century, we, there were skirmishes among ethnic groups, Italians and the Poles and so on and so forth. But when you look at history, European history, for example, 
and you look at the ethnic warfares that emerged, or just civilizational history, and you look at the ethnic warfares that existed. Um, we've, we've, even during even the horrific treatment of blacks in this country, it never escalated into something like, I mean, we've had horrible um, white supremacists when, when they did really truly exist in this country. I mean, really did exist, inflicted horrific, I'm thinking of the 1917 St. Louis riots, uh, wars against, you know, blacks. But we've never really had outright race wars on a protracted scale in this country. And so when I say, you know, that race has become irrelevant, I mean, and that when I also say that racism doesn't exist, I don't mean that racism doesn't exist in the sense that people aren't privately discriminated against, but to the extent that there is no concerted effort on the part of the state to squash, to destroy the lives of people because they are black in this country. That does not exist anymore. There are no legal barriers that prevent blacks from entering into the public sphere, into any profession, into any domain which is suited, well suited to their skill set. In that sense, and that's the only proper sense in which we can talk about racism doesn't exist anymore. Racism will always exist in the private sphere. You can't control people's private individual beliefs and their attitudes. I mean, as Shelby Steele said, stupid people will always exist and racism is a form of psychosis and those such people always exist. Um, we have laws to protect them from harming um, the rights of other people. Well, what, what we see in America is such a push for multi <clears throat> multiculturalism. And so when I when I try to understand racism in America, <clears throat> it seems like it's more of a cultural, a subcultural manifestation that's being promoted to distinguish groups from other groups, as opposed to the e pluribus unum model where, yeah, we're all different. We have different backgrounds, different talents and whatever, but we find something that unifies us. And what my understanding of America was, was the Declaration of Independence and the political philosophy that it was promoting and codified in our constitution was that we were one people. And we were one people insofar as we respected each individual's individual rights to do what they wanted to do, pursuit of happiness. And we set up institutions to do that. But now all of a sudden we see forces at play that are contrary to that. And it seems that race, ethnicity, LGBTQ, all these other uh, classifications are being promoted uh, in ways to actually divide America. And I don't know that there's any kind of a puppet that's pulling the strings on this. It seems like there's an organizing principle that is justifying a lot of what's happening in America. And to me, that justifying principle, organizing principle is Marxism. A lot of people are now all of a sudden being seduced into thinking that we can make everybody equal and we'll have a utopia. Uh, except it doesn't just happen. Somebody has to 
to pull the levers, push the buttons, make the decisions. And so it, it seems that we are seducing a very large part of our society into thinking that a utopia is possible. Uh, you get the same sense? I do, and, and, and I would I'd like to speak a little bit about this. I think that one, one <clears throat> we're moving away from a philosophy of individualism, which, you know, when I came here 37 years ago, that was still a respectable word. Um, it's disappearing. It's Well, it's completely obliterated on the left, and I'm surprised that conservatives today, uh, some of whom are becoming just as tribalistic as, as those on the left, um, don't seem to respect the philosophy of individualism anymore. And what we have are individuals who use their private identities, whether they're black, white, gay, um, Latino, you name it, any kind of uh, private identity, they collectivize it and they politicize their identities and insert those politicized identities into the public sphere, which is really anti-American because as you said, we are all different. We come from different backgrounds but we share a core common American identity, which uh, when we pledge allegiance to America, those, those our commitments to those identities um, take a backseat or, or our commitment to America supersedes everything else, that core common identity that we have. That is when we're caught between conflicting loyalties between these local identities that we have and a common commitment to America. Uh, I, I think most most assimilated American immigrants and I think most Americans who has, have hyphenated identities would say that I'm an American first and foremost. And um, what multiculturalism really does is it shores up the distinctness and the separateness that people have and it codifies them in such a way that it makes them think that that racial, that ethnic um, identity, that sexualized, politicized identity that you have forms the most constitutive basis for who you are as a person, not your values, not your principles, not your convictions, but the politicized aspect of your identity, uh, ethnic, racial, sexual, that you've politicized, and that it has to be it's based on a preservationist ethic that the state has to grant it sort of stamp it with the imprimatur of, of approval and 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 what you have are warring factions among among these groups right so multiculturalism is not about the promotion of peace multiculturalism is about these about ethnic and racial and sexual factionalism in america um where each group is competing and vying for um, contestations among themselves for superiority. It's like it's like beggars. I like to think of beggars who are making invidious comparisons among their, among their source. You know, I'm the bigger I'm the bigger victim, or I've had a, a, a greater grievance uh, entitlement um, that's that's more that's more worthy of my of my 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 culture. And so we have these, what, what's developing in America are parallel societies, which I thought, you know, was the province of France or parts of Europe that, that's emerging with 
the rise of the Islamization of Europe, but the same thing is emer emerging in America where we have these parallel societies that are running concurrently. And that's quite dangerous. You know, that's quite, it's, it's quite anti-American. And it, it's also running with the ideologies that are promoting them in the universities, these radical left-wing Marxist ideologies, which are the springboard for multiculturalism and these concurrent um, politicized identities that we see people holding. And I do agree with you, it's very Marxist oriented um, because it's based on equity, it's based on equal outcomes and we're not all equal. Um, we Equity is based on the idea of equal results from unequal causes or equal rewards for unequal performance. And unfortunately we're we're equal before the law, which we should be, right? But we're mm -hmm. not. We're not equal in intelligence. We're not equal in frugality. We're not equal in values. I'm not the athletic equal of my countryman Usain Bolt, who's the fastest man in the world, I think, still. And how do you redistribute values? How do you redistribute personal attributes, which are the bases out of which outcomes um, Arise. So it's no wonder that we have such low morale in the in the military, Ron, because, and I'll stop here, I just want to say this, it's no wonder that we have such low morale in the military, because when you've got really super talented, hardworking, competent people who build their skill set and achieve a particular outcome, and then some mediocrity comes along and just because of a particular ascriptive, whether it's ethnic, racial identity, um, is let everyone is led to believe that regardless of performance, regardless of ability, uh, if the outcomes are not equal, something is awry and that something called injustice has been achieved. And so who would want to join the military today if one is hardworking, one has spent a, a lifetime building one's skill set, but one is going to be judged not by one's merits and by one's talents, but by some substandard level that measures performance by something called equity, that is equal outcomes for everyone regardless of ability, regardless of endowment, regardless of talents, regardless of personal attributes. Well, what what strikes me is uh, there are deliberate efforts to shape the, the type of sentiment that we see in America today. And one one proponent was an MIT trained cognitive scientist. Actually, he was trained as a linguist, but I think He's taken the title cognitive scientist to um, to change a different image of what he presents. But he wrote a book back in the 1990s called Thinking Points. It's a progressive handbook. I ordered a Kindle version of the book so I could do a quick word search. And the word facts came up 35 times. The word frames came up 370 times. And so his whole approach was to explain to those he was coaching in terms of political messaging that it's the frame that matters. If facts fit 
great. If they don't, they're irrelevant. And to me, that's pure propaganda. That's the, the essence of propaganda as opposed to just sharing the facts as ugly or as comfortable as they may or may not be. But so we have narratives that are being shaped out there, which leads to my last question for this session. And, and what we'll do is we'll transition to a third session here. But you were scheduled to appear on NPR to discuss your book where you had appeared in the past to discuss your book, only to be canceled for that session. Tell us about that experience and what it tells us about the left's suppression of truth. Well, I did appear on the session with um, with host Dr. Alan Campbell, who's a wonderful man, and, and his producer, who are both wonderful people. <clears throat> but I was told um, by someone within the organization that the higher-ups uh, nicked the program and and would not have it um, aired. And the producer herself resigned, I think, in protest and actually put the show up on the internet. And I subsequently made a stink about it. I wrote an article about it in Front Page Magazine where I'm a columnist. And within two days, I think NPR decided because they didn't like the negative publicity and other net uh, media outlets picked up the story. They decided to run um, run the show, but I had been warned by many people within the two people within the organization that the book was too controversial, too inflammatory. I don't think it's an inflammatory book. I think there are controversial themes in there, of course, but I think it's written in a very measured way. Um, it's almost too scholarly for the average reader, but. Um, <clears throat> but I was told that the, the themes of the book, you know, say, uh, were too controversial and that it was going to be an uphill battle to have the show aired. What does it say about the left? It says that, you know, well, I am part of what's called a protected class in America. That is, I'm a, 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 a black man. And that I'm expected to mouth a particular narrative and I dared to deviate from the orthodox script that a black man is supposed to mouth. I happen to be an independent conservative. I make no bones or apologies for that. It's who I am. And it doesn't mean that I agree with everything that conservatives say. This is why I fix the moniker independent. I'm an independent thinker. But how dare I have independent thoughts? How dare I go against orthodox and receive wisdom? And so it, it tells me that a large part, and this has been my experience in academia for 25 years now, where I haven't experienced racism on the left. Uh, it tells me that if you are not willing to toe the line and to parrot orthodoxy, and the, the received wisdom of, of the left, that you will pay a price. Um, it also tells me that if you smash the framing devices, one of them being intersectionality, if you smash the framing devices and dare to just let the facts sometimes speak for themselves and create your own framing device, a framing device that I think is predicated on the facts 
and not a framing device that exists prior to the facts uh, in which the facts must fit themselves, but then perceive what the facts are and then from the facts tell a story that originally organically emanate from the facts, not vice versa, not in the reverse. You know, what the, what they do is they, they create a theoretical narrative that is based on their fantasies, on their wishes, on their emotions, on their whims, on their caprices. And then somehow if the facts don't fit those fantasies, those facts get let out, left out. And that's, I think, what bothers a lot of people about me personally and philosophically, is that I unsentimentally just try to look at the facts and then to tell a story based on the facts rather than sort of, I'm not a Platonist, I'm more of an Aristotelian. You know, I, I believe in, and I, I respect science. I think that's that's what it tells us about the left. And it also tells us the left that, tells us that the far left and not, the not so far left also, um, has a very dangerous agenda to remake this country into a Marxist, socialist, um, utopianist, idealist country, and that anyone um, who dares to deviate from that agenda is to be silenced. Very profound, Professor. We're going to let this session end on that note. Uh, how can our uh, listeners learn more about Professor Jason Hill? Well, they can follow me on Twitter at, um, my handle is at Jason D. Hill 6. They can also follow me on Facebook where I post a lot of my stuff at, at Dr. Jason D. Hill. They can certainly buy my books on Amazon, which are all discounted. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and they can, they can, my website is um, jasondamianhill.com. I'm in the process of updating it, but um, they can find find my books and who I am and more about me and, and more importantly look at a lot of my into past interviews and and ideas and um, um, on Jason Damian D A M I A N Hill dot com. Mm -hmm. Very good. Well, Professor, I'll tell you, I'm I'm humbled to hear your insights on what's happening in America, and I do want our listeners to know that uh, we are going to bring you back for a follow-on session. Thank uh, you. Thank you, Professor. Thank you very much.